Hello and welcome to This Epic Life, the podcast. I'm Bailey Bennett Andrade, along with CEO of Epic Education, Dr. Nancy Dome. And today we're going to be talking with Natalie Bowie. She's one of the three co-founders over at Shift, which is a DEI consulting company that focuses on building equity, diversity, and inclusion. And they also have a sexual harassment prevention training. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Natalie. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to get started, what was your personal motivation behind getting into the DEI world? Yeah, yeah, totally. And <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Right, let's just start off easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it all started a big part of it. And it kind of, le- a big part of it, it, it plays a part of my definitely a part of my identity too, but I I think I want to get into that a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. I think I can name the moment for sure. It was when all the conversations were happening around the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. and we were seeing the ways our own friends and our own colleagues were having harmful conversations around this, not in a way with the intention to harm others and to shame others, but it really came from a lack of foundational understanding. Mm-hmm. So we were like, damn, our friends are having these type of conversations. We needed to bring these conversations into the fold because for sure they were happening in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I, before coming in into doing shift, I was at Planned Parenthood. Um, and my first start into this work was the reproductive, reproductive justice work. But then when I got more laser focus and I was at Planned Parenthood and I didn't see people who looked like me, I was like, okay, wait, there's something missing here. So when I had the luxury and the privilege and the time to, you know, analyze that a little bit more, I recognized, okay, with reproductive justice comes gender justice, but without, but without a racial equity lens, there's a huge chunk of that missing. Mm-hmm. And so all of that started with really just hearing the conversations in the ways they were unfolding in real time. And they were uncomfortable and they were tense and people were really hurt and harmed and triggered by it. And so we thought, okay, we, I'm, um, Kasser and Valine were colleagues in the space, also doing this work in their own individual ways. And we were facilitating these conversations in our own ways. And I was doing it at a, in, a, in a setting at a civil rights organization for Asian Americans. And we found that a civil rights organization that was doing policy advocacy work, you couldn't do policy advocacy without foundational understandings about racial equity. And so I found myself in those spaces, having those dialogues, having those trainings, and we decided to team up forces and create shift and, be, and ultimately to humanize the ways that we've been having, having conversations with our friends and wanted to bring that externally. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of touch on a historical issue, really, mm-hmm. on this, this understanding um, that you know, when, when we think about, you know, women's rights and the women's movement, you know, from decades and decades ago, yeah. we forget that the, the departure, when, when oh they saw that the civil rights movement was going to hold back the women's movement, it departed from the civil rights mm-hmm. group intentionally, right? Because mm-hmm. they felt like they could move faster, but that's when it became a more of a white woman's movement. Right. And, and this is why people of color, women of color particularly, have struggled to see themselves in this conversation, because, you know, when, when, you know, all of a sudden we realize what's really more important. We say it's gender, but when you're willing to separate from a movement 
that was inclusive to become a movement then if you're not talking about race and you're talking about gender well then you've just excluded a whole so it what you're talking exactly. about is mm -hmm. just um it's it's kind of like this cycle of of it just happening again until we kind of rectify right. the history mm -hmm. of the separation of the women's movement and what you know so me too if it's not inclusive of people of color, it feels exactly like it did in the 60s when they separated. Totally. And so I think people understanding the historical context of this 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 issue and therefore how their their conversations become hurtful and harmful because they don't actually have the larger context. Mm -hmm. And thank you for naming that because even you just reminding and drawing it to zooming out to that is just how history also played out too and just recognizing like our own bodies are carrying and repeating those same frameworks and just trying to challenge those traditional frameworks as well and I think that lends into how my own identity has been playing in this role too and how also just learning my own history and learning my own identity and seeing the history repeat and replay itself just in different situations. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm currently reading Minor Feelings um, by Kathy Park Huang. And it essentially names how, how Asian Americans in particular were always in the in-between, never in deeply in the racial equity conversations, but could not also not have those conversations, but still a form of like exclusion was happening there, right? Whether it was like our own selves, removing ourselves from the conversation. Um, and it was, a it was just a reminder of like, okay, I, I know I got into this work because I wanted to show that no, our Asian Americans in particular, our history is deeply, deeply rooted in the civil rights movement, built off of the black liberation movement, but also, so, so much of our inspiration came from that. So how can we be considered passive? How can we be considered docile when our history and our existence was rooted in so much radicalness? Mm -hmm. So there's that element. And so there's that element where I'm like, want to bring that form of representation in. But then as we're seeing things played out, and I think the book was demonstrating that so well, and like, I'm still unpacking and still sitting with, I'm thinking about how, like, our proximity to whiteness too and what I've been really sitting with that like how Asian Americans can choose to engage in these conversations but choose only when it's convenient for them but also that doesn't mean to dismiss all the histories of oppression that Asian Americans felt and I think that's what I'm sitting with in this book today that our existence in this time our whole existence feels like a microaggression, not a fully committed aggression in some ways in certain capacities because like everything that our proximity to whiteness, but then um, always a huge like microaggression. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm just really grappling with the need to represent the radicalness, but also recognizing our proximity to whiteness too. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a interesting. Um, it's it's interesting to talk about it this way because I think a lot of it is starting to come up. We're starting to see it now. Yeah. Around but, um, I think about you know the we we have a course called the Asian Model Minority Myth, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this idea when we talk about stereotypes of of how we you know kind of identify and categorize peoples like groups of people as if all people in that group are the same. 
and how even having what is you know traditionally considered a positive stereotype is in fact a negative stereotype because of the impact right yep side of it and then this it made me think of it because you talk about the proximity to whiteness um is that you know, you, you see, and we saw this play out in SATs scores, you see Asian Americans outscoring white white people for whom the test was written, right? Right. So, and, and, and I always, I remember looking at that data because, it, you know, everyone tries to make a, a conversation about socioeconomics and not about race. But when you looked at that data and, and I said, you know, this is where Asians have mastered whiteness. And not white, like white people, but whiteness, mm -hmm. the whole myth of whiteness. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this is also where then you, you know, it's that microaggression that you talk yeah. about. Microaggression, because here you've actually perfected something that was not created for you, right? But, and, I, and I'm making a vast generalization, so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of but when we're looking at the data and we see the outperforming of Asian students compared to white students on these test scores, you begin to understand that, you know, the system rebels and we saw it happen again when Berkeley refused to let Asian students in, you know, now almost a decade ago, yeah. again, the microaggression, nobody was complaining when there was too many white students or it was predominantly white students mm -hmm. in there. But when Asian students outpopulated white students, they had to restrict how many Asian students they yeah. let in because it wasn't equitable. And that for me is the microaggression. It's that like, it, as, as long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't, um, you know, your existence doesn't impact or take away from the majority, then you're fine. But because there's always this infringement on what the entitlement of whiteness, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that we start to see these kind of things yeah, I mean, that are anti-Asian. Mm -hmm. But also in terms of the whole affirmative action thing too, I just think about how that moment, recently, I know that there was that Harvard case. There was that Harvard case on admissions. And that was a conversation where we recognized, like, our role was being used as a wedge between other communities of color. So we had the Asian Americans who were complaining and felt that they were being disadvantaged and that they were at a unfair advantage. So they sided with essentially this white guy who was trying to push a case against um, uh, yeah, against those admissions cases, um, affirmative action. And and then we were recognizing, oh my God, like there's a big community of us that really believe that we're being disserviced in this. And like, it's not just about us, it's about all communities of color as a whole. And so that to me was the closest of like, I we're seeing it play out where again, we're a community, a portion of us is seeing it as like, okay, we're holding on to this whiteness and we want to hold on to it, you know? And, and then I don't know if this, I don't know if you all watch Insecure, but um, there was a, I don't know if you all watch Insecure, but this last episode of Insecure, um, I don't know, are you all familiar with like a character? No, you have to yeah, tell us a little bit about the premise. Yeah. Got it, got it. Okay, so this um, black woman is dating an Asian man. They go on vacation together and with his family, so with his Asian passing family. And there's a conversation that comes up about race in there. And the, the Asian guy did not, there's an incident that happens, a racist incident that happens. And the Asian guy just goes, 
but do you really think it was about race? And she, and then the girl who the accident it was inflicted on, she was like, yes, it was a hundred percent about race. And he was like, yeah, but you don't always have to make it about race. And I got like secondhand embarrassment because mm-hmm. here is like another portrayal of Asian Americans, but denying that this is happening. And I, 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 there was like shame in it. And then again, a reminder of this like proximity to whiteness and, mm-hmm. and then tying it back, I guess, like to all of this work as well. I think we've been questioning too at Shift is it possible to decenter whiteness in this work mm-hmm. at this time? And and even in the book, the Minor Feelings book, she talks about how like I like why do people of color need to center whiteness in their work? But she, the author, writes like I I have to acknowledge it when my community there's moments of proximity to whiteness too. And so I think we're just grappling with like what does that look like for diversity and equity inclusion work. Yeah. Where does our energy and, and, and it's kind of ironic because this whole notion of decentering whiteness forces you to almost focus. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it is. And I know for me, like our work has always, you know, when we are called in, it's about, you know, how do we fix the other? Like, well, our students aren't behaving or they're not doing this. And our work is always going back. You know, how about if we stop looking externally and we think about how am I what is my role and responsibility in the failure of the student, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in personalizing, but it's forcing us then to force our educators who are predominantly white to look at themselves and say, how might my whiteness be showing up mm-hmm. and be powerful to the mm-hmm. students that we're serving. So, you know, the notion of decentering, it, it, it's kind of this dissonance of decentering, but also having to put this focus on it. Right. right? To actively not. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I think a big part of what's going on right now, too, is naming that idea of whose responsibility is it to care about these issues? Because like we've talked about historically, it's been an issue of people of color because it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, so this inflicts you. So then it's your responsibility to figure out how to deal with it. And then kind of white people are off the hook. And right now it's kind of like trying to like prove to white people that this is a thing like microaggressions happen you're not experiencing it because you're white but it's happening well and i'm gonna push it's they're experiencing it but it may not be racial right Mm -hmm. microaggressions happen it's not just about race Mm -hmm. but when we when we're talking about race you know Mm -hmm. they may have different experiences and also i mean i want to i want to say that you know I speak to plenty of white um, educators who feel like they are victims of microaggressions, racial mm-hmm. microaggressions as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the historical context. And because we haven't dealt with our history, yeah. you know, what, you know, your students come in, they don't know me and they, they're judging me as just this white person. Well, let's change narrative because that's what it feels like for people of color every day. Yeah. You know, a woman of color for me, a black woman, to to know that the first time, you know, you look at me, that you have thoughts that may mm-hmm. have nothing to do with who and what I am, mm-hmm. right? And so our students are walking in and you're getting a moment of what it feels like. And I'm not saying it's okay, but if we could use that as a reflective opportunity to say, oh, wow, I don't like this feeling. When do I do it to other people mm-hmm. so that we can actually start to learn from it? And I'm, I'm, I haven't figured out how to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. How to, how to normalize yeah. that experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Reflect about it, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. 
Totally, totally. So like how has your identity shaped your experiences at shift? Like how are you actually using that to kind of feel yourself? Yeah. Um, Thank you for, you're right. Cause there's a difference between what am I experiencing personally mm-hmm. with my identity and in, in this work and in, in as a whole, but at shift, I find that it is always a superpower for sure. Mm-hmm. I find that I think I want to use it as a tool like my, like just as representation that you can be in this work and you should care and that you can care. Mm-hmm. And again, just because from my experiences, I never really see people like myself in this space. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I just want to show that it can be done. And even as I bring in, as we, well, prior to the pandemic, when we were expanding our external facilitator team, what does it mean to have someone across multiple Asian American identities speak to their role in this work? Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's just like, and I find that I, I have to double back sometimes when I use an example from my own experience, I have to explain some context that there's so much more of us, like me as a Vietnamese American, like as a Southeast Asian American, there's, there's dynamics against East Asian Americans. There's like a colonial history there. There's a lot of wounds and hurting there that I'm learning from witnessing my parents, Mm -hmm. um, from my parents. And so just recognizing like, and even with South Asians, right, who might look more Muslim, more Muslim American and how they have to deal with the surveillance of that all the time. But I don't read as Muslim American, so I don't have to deal with that. So I, it's a reminder that I know it can be powerful, but there's so much nuance there that yeah. we got to well, capture that too. I think that's part of, you know, some of what we have to deconstruct, right? Is yeah. That, you know, when you think about Asian, it's such a diverse group within itself. And yet we, we chunk everyone in there. So, you know, when I think about when I started teaching in, in alt ed and alternative ed, um, we had Asian students, but they were all Southeast Asians. They were oh. all Filipino or Vietnamese. They were not, um, they were not Japanese. They were not Chinese, Korean, yeah. um, mm-hmm. Korean. Um, and, and it was significant. It's like, you know, and also they typically had darker skin. And so you had this colorism that was, that you saw playing out in the school system about who, you know, even though you have the larger myth and this is the harmful piece, right? That larger Asian model minority myth. I found that my students who were darker, who were from Southeast Asia were not privy to the, the, the benefit of that myth for them. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. um, so they were disenfranchised more like, mm-hmm. like a, a, a person of color in the in the in the district. And so totally. um, really, you know, and, and the same, you know, I think we, we default to, for instance, Mexican as for every brown person who's Spanish speaking, you know, everyone's like you're 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 Mexican and there's nothing wrong with Mexican. But if that's not who you are, you know, um, and there's yeah. so, again, so vast. Um, and so how do we. How do we actually realize that it's important for us to know? Yeah, you know totally. that our, our, the differences, and that the differences aren't deficits; that they're actually what what bring this very you know this kind of this beauty and this yeah. variety to the to the to the narrative. Yeah, totally. It reminds me that like. God, even thinking back on like our work in my work in Asian American organizations, even then, like 
our strategies aren't monolithic and you see the, the, the different tensions and even like the different generational approaches, right? My, my experience aren't the same as my parents' experiences, but just recognizing their sentiments around other Asian dis- diaspora. It's just, it's, it's wild to take that into account and also to carry that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, gosh, it's a whole nother layer. (laughs) It is. It's a whole nother layer. It's Um, a whole other layer. Absolutely. So, so I know you were first generation, I believe, Mm -hmm. right, Natalie? So, so how, how was that for you having to switch into a culture that may be different from what your parents experienced? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'm, I still lean on, um, that book, the minor feelings. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think she put it really well in naming that our whole lives, Asian Americans feel indebted to their parents, Mm -hmm. but their parents feel indebted to the country. Mm -hmm. And there's a weird dualness that plays there. Um, There's a weird dualness that plays there. But what happens when you come to a reckoning about like, yeah, but your parents feel indebted to a country that has really been capitalistic in its ventures at the detriment of our own countries, right? Of like, in my case, like of Vietnam, right? So what does that look like when you're indebted to a country that has been incredibly exploitive Mm -hmm. of your own home country? And so there's, there is liberation in reading that for sure. Like it was very freeing to read and recognize the dissonance between the two um, and naming that, um, and how conditional that also all is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm still, I'm still sitting, I'm still sitting with it. And then, and then like, I don't, I think this book has really been making the waves too. And I've been really hungry to talk about it, but um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi Mm -hmm. has really shifted a lot of things that I've traditionally understood in anti-racist work. And it's really made me recognize the generational approaches, the my parents' survival instincts yeah. um, to need to assimilate, whereas in ours is wanting to be louder and like more resistant and calling it out. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you grow up in a household where it was taught to, out of their own trauma and their own po- political trauma, right, from fleeing from another uh, politically turmoil place, um, just the different lens and the different approach it ta- uh, yeah. in terms of assimilation. So yes, I just grappling with a lot. <laughs> yeah. yes. I, well, I think that you bring the, the whole generational piece, I think is crucial in understanding, um, you know, there, there's a, uh, I can't think of his name, um, but he did a lot of work probably about 20 years ago now on, on generational intelligence. Mm. and the intelligences that each generation brings based on their experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And how that sets us up. And he doesn't talk about about in the racial terms, but I think it's super interesting to talk about it in racial terms. Yeah. It's the same thing. His little analogy was like, you know, if you if you were born during the Great Depression and then you became a business owner, when you, um, when you, um, or trying to discipline an employee, you might take a day off of work away from them because work was so important to you, right? And the and work was so crucial. But for that employee who's you know twenty years younger and a different di- generational motivation, they're like, cool, I get a day <laughs> off. You know, 
you know, but I remember reading that going, oh yeah. So like, you know, what, what, and I think about my teachers in school and the ones that were successful and motivating me and the ones that didn't and the ones that were successful were the ones who were more like trying to build a relationship with me and be in alignment with that disciplinarian. Because again, I'm, a, you know, I'm growing up a rebel. I'm growing up, you know, learning, you know, how to speak out and having the few touches uh, tell me different, you know, like you need to be strong and you're a strong black woman and all this. But, um, but when I think about, I hadn't really considered what that generational intelligence, how that impacts race, like yeah. your experiences, you know, being in a country and just, you know, you're one generation removed from your parents and yet your experiences are completely different. Completely different. The approaches yeah. are completely different, right? Yeah. Where it's like, theirs is more like, don't say anything, don't call it out. And it's like, no, no, I will not stand for that, you know? But, <laughs> but like, I can't blame them for taking yeah. that route either. That's, yeah. like, that's their trauma and that's yeah. however they've been healing with. And so, yeah. and, I've, and I've also been sitting with like, man, like, what will, what, how will my, what will the next generation, my, my future kids, like with this rhetoric and this framework, like more easily accessible and presented to them, um, what will that do to them? And what will that mean for them? And how will their approach radically change? And I think if my, my parent generation took the a survivor assimilation like tactic, mm -hmm. we're really challenging that, you know, and I, there's this tweet especially that was happening around COVID-19. Um, it was this Asian American guy that said like, oh, my mom said we should make sure to speak um, Taiwanese, Taiwanese instead of Cantonese in front of white people. Um, so then they don't give us the look um, around COVID-19. And then his response was just like, yeah, mom, but like, why are we trying to appease them? You know, like, why are we changing our accents and our language to show some difference from whatever is happening. And so it's just like, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of resistance and push and pull there. Yeah, well, that, I think that was very similar to Andrew Yang's. Uh, yes. You saw that in the reaction. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, and again, it's, it's the victim, you know, being told yeah. to make the perpetrator feel better. Like I, I, I've got to change who I am. Yep. So appear to be more like you so that you don't victimize me even though you have nothing to do with this right and thank you for naming that andrew yang thing i that is such a clear indication to me about the generational difference in approach yeah. When, yeah. when his campaign was running on jokes about math and and doctors being yeah. friends with doctors and being smart he was trying to use that and spin that at, as his advantage i saw yeah. that and i can recognize that but then the younger, like the younger generation was not having it. They were like, we're not going to stand by that. But I can see his tactic, like, and beyond like, well, this is what I, this is what I did. I have to use my jokes and my self-deprecating humor, like for my own benefit, right. you know? And so, yeah, the Andrew Yang thing was just like a very clear example of the different generational approaches yeah. for sure. Yeah, and and the thing is, he's not even. I mean, I don't know how old he is, but yeah, I know this. Shit. Yeah, I, think, <laughs> I think I'm older than him, but it, it, I and, and it is. It's it's, but it is. It's like you know whether it's generational or whether it's like okay, this is this is um, an avatar that's been put on me, you yeah. know, uh, mm -hmm. by society, and so if I appear outside of that, and I actually think Obama had a lot of that too. He completely. Mm -hmm who he was. And, you know, I remember um, a friend saying to me once that, 
that had America actually read his book, The Audacity of Hope, they would have never voted for him because they would have understand that he was a black man, right? That they, that he wasn't. Yeah. Just, yeah. They leaned, they talked so much about his white mother and that's what made him tolerable. Right, right. Because uh, he had a white mother. Right, the code switching, that like yeah. uh, the deep, deep code switching. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then just to think that, you know, uh, that he couldn't, like, I don't believe, and when I, I, I read his book and reading, you know, Michelle's book and and re and I'm, I'm like, you know what? I don't think that we even got to see him because there was so mm -hmm. much of having to be in this this character, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I think that was Andrew Yang too running. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of things I liked about him. You know, I liked sure. him young, I liked, but I, yeah. I found that same thing. I'm like, we're perpetuating something that that is potentially harmful and detrimental, not potentially, that is, yeah. and, 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 um, and instead of, you know, pushing back against it, but then, you know, the thing is, how do you get in the door? And, and, and yeah. that is the, the struggle. The struggle, the struggle. And yes. you get called in, you get called out if you, if you participate too much in that institutional way. Um, yeah, it's just, it, you, you get called out for doing it in that way, but, uh, if you try to push back against it, you can't even get in, you can't know? Can't even get you know? in to make a difference, right? So, you even make a difference. So yeah. it's a constant negotiation for sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as- when we're, not, um, when we're not having these conversations like this, you know? Yeah. But, and I'm hopeful that yeah. it can happen, you know? I, and I just think that it's like work that you do, mm -hmm. um, you know, work that, that we're doing that, you know, just trying to change the dialogue to normalize the conversation, yes. normalize the discourse, mm -hmm. um, and to be able to push back and say, we want something different, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for naming that. I yes. felt a lot of breath in you just saying that already. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. yes. Thank you for sitting and sharing your story with us today, Natalie. Yes. Thank you for um, creating the space for me to even process like my own personal reckoning and literature that I've come yes. across. And so, Absolutely. I think we, I, we, you know, we love, and that's what we love. Like we like to start off, we were laughing because we did one interview and we didn't get to a single question. That was really? Because, because it was just so fascinating. And, and we really, you know, when we think about these podcasts, it's really about the personal connections. Of course, we want to promote what you're doing, but, for sure. The benefit to you being the second person from Shift to for us to interview is that you know we've talked about Shift and now we can really talk about yes, you yes. And, yeah. and your experience. So that you know we're trying to provide information for people just to to maybe just stop for a second and have a different perspective. You know, mm -hmm. even if it's just to hear a counter narrative mm -hmm. that might make them think twice about mm -hmm. what they what they do. You know, or mm -hmm. what they're doing. So we are so grateful for your time. Thank you so much, you all. I really appreciate it. Visit www.epiceducation.com for resources that will help you to understand and navigate the ever-changing world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are a company that trains and transforms with innovative in-person and online equity workshops that support school districts and leaders to build capacity to carry on this work internally. Now go out and have an epic day.